Peace We Build It is a podcast about the Alliance for Peacebuilding and its network of over 130 organizations working globally in 181 countries to reduce and prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace. Host Tanya Domi will interview AFP's global partners, expert guests, and policy advocates on how they tackle the challenging work of conflict prevention and peace building in a world riddled by increasing violent conflict and more. In our first Peace We Build It podcast, we open with an interview of Liz Hume, the acting CEO and president of the Alliance for Peace Building. Liz is a seasoned expert in international policy and foreign assistance and has worked for the U.S. government as well as a number of multilateral organizations carrying out complex conflict prevention and governance programs in conflict-affected and fragile states in Asia, Eastern Europe, and Africa. She joined the Alliance for Peacebuilding as the Senior Director of programs and strategy in 2015, was promoted to vice president in 2018, and became acting CEO and president in December 2020. Full disclosure, I met Liz Hume 24 years ago when we both worked for the OSCE mission to Bosnia and Herzegovina. Okay, our listeners just heard a version of the Alliance for Peacebuilding mission description. I don't want to repeat it again, but you are an organization that networks more than 130 organizations working in 181 countries to end violent conflict and build peace. So when was the Alliance for Peacebuilding established? It was established uh, about 20 years ago and maybe even uh, before that. And it came together as a small group of experts that were working on these issues. And it was a kind of a community of practice is how it started. Just individuals who are working in organizations or, or, or doing this work. And they wanted to understand uh, what other people were doing. How could they strengthen the field? What were the challenges that they were having? What was working? What wasn't working? So that's how it started. It came together just as a small group of practitioners coming together and and wanting to talk about these issues. So it has become really a global coalition. I mean, you Mm -hmm. help uh, spearhead campaigns. uh, You hold an annual conference each year with the U.S. Institute of Peace. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk about the reach of the AFP. It's significant. And I have to tell you, it is one of the things I love most about this job is that, you know, we get to work with wonderful people in the office, but at the same time, we work with organizations that are, you know, Mercy Corps, for example, or Search for Common Ground, um, large organizations that are just doing incredible work from, you know, you name it, from Ethiopia to you know, Bangladesh to Northern Triangle and, and Guatemala and, and Honduras. I mean, you name it, you know, 181 countries, our members are there working on the ground, you know, small organizations, uh, local organizations, 
academic institutions. The reach is phenomenal. And just as importantly, you know, we're working also now in the United States as well. That's another, I think, really important critical piece to this. That's kind of like the State Department under Hillary Clinton. She finally brought the United States under the human rights reporting regime. And now you have included the United States among your members. That really speaks to not only trying to set a standard for global work, but also exacting that standard at home. Hypocritical not to when, you know, the economist puts the United States down as a flawed democracy and you're seeing violence um, increasing in the United States as well. So it's just hypocritical and it doesn't make sense. Well, exactly. So speaking of which, um, just recently, Freedom House determined, according to their measurements, the world has experienced a downward trend in democracy over the past 15 years. The world is trending illiberally in governance, not just in the United States, but in Europe and in Asia, which is dealing with much more aggressive, uh, much more aggressive and belligerent China. Is this why the world seems more violent today, this downward trend in democracy? Is this true? And what does the AFP data tell us? So that's really interesting. The data is telling us the world is more violent. And that data is clear. And I can go into that in a second. But Mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about it. Like, why does it also feel that things are more violent? And it's because within countries that you thought were stable, where things had been decided, mm-hmm, right. um, you know, you're seeing whether it's through Brexit or um, Hungary or Poland, Poland, the United States, you are seeing serious cracks. It's not only destabilizing to the people in that country, but it's also Uh, threatening, you know, the world order as well. So it's just more out there. It's more present. And I think that's why when you're seeing backsliding in democracy makes it even that much more scarier. For sure. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. Tell us about the data on this specifically. So the data is not good. And I know that there are some folks out there that claim the world is Uh, or, you know, up until about 2016, that the world was getting uh, safer or less violent. And it has in terms of state versus state conflict. So a war versus- Like wars, like we're talking about wars. Yeah, like a war, you know, between country X and country Y. Absolutely. But what has happened is that when you start looking at civil wars and regional conflicts, Since 2010, major violent conflicts have tripled. And in 2019, there were 196 violent conflicts and 38 full-scale and limited wars. And so- that's a lot. It's a lot. And when we worked in the Balkans together, uh, going back into the 90s, you know, you were seeing those state versus state conflicts. Right. Um, And it's changed. And that's why- I think people have said, you know, things were getting better. But when you start looking down into the data in a specific country, coupled with the fact 
you know, if you look at the area like the Northern Triangle in Central America, you have to start looking at violence levels too. So you have murders happening that are equivalent to where you'd have battle deaths. And you have to start thinking about that violence in that same way. And so I think once you start adding all of that together, and then on top of that with COVID, we now know COVID isn't just a health crisis. Um, it is really destabilizing and had a very significant- to society, yes. Yeah, and had a very significant impact on democracies as well, has, has been contributing to the backsliding and also violent extremism as well. Violent extremists have taken advantage of the situation. So right now you have these destabilizing factors. Um, and recent research came out of a university recently that said the pandemic's impacts could result in 13 more countries experiencing conflict through 2022. And that's a 56% increase compared to pre-COVID forecasts. So that's just an example. When you analyze these countries or regions um, that have potential to become violent or destabilized, what are you looking for? I mean, what are some of the major indicators of potential conflict breaking out? So I always say this is not an exact science. This is a, you know, a soft science or a social science. But we have gotten very good in terms of analysis and data in looking at it. And there's a lot of really good uh, sites out there, like the Fund for Peace, that tracks and, and you can look and, and ranks countries, for example, in terms of their fragility, the Fragile States Index. But it's not that easy. It's just because a country is sitting at number 19 on the conflict watch list doesn't mean anything is going to happen there. Um, so you have to first go in and look at the grievances. What's causing people to be upset, angry, to have grievances? Um, but that doesn't really tell you everything because in any country, even in stable countries, I'm sure in Sweden, people have grievances <laughs> against the government. That's not going to tell the full story. So you have to go in and you have to look at what is driving people to be angry, to be upset. What are those grievances? And you can look at a couple of areas, you can put them in buckets. And it tends to look at when you have corruption in a government, you have a, a government that is not meeting the needs of right, it's not the meeting, citizens. Not taking right. care of people. Or there's a hierarchy in terms of elites are, but other people aren't. Um, so, you know, you can go in and see a lot of, you know, those grievances, you know, economic inequality, uh, ethnic grievances in terms of, you know, one group is getting something more than the other. So you can look at them in these buckets um, and every context is different, um, but you can see themes of what has historically driven people to have serious grievances. You know, that's, again, just one part of the equation because you can have serious grievances, but you have significant resiliencies in societies. And the society, and that resiliency can be good or bad. So, you know, if you're in a, an authoritarian country, the resiliency to be able to push those grievances down is gonna be quite great. 
um, you know, in a democracy, for example, a well-functioning democracy, you'll have the court system. And, you know, I rule, remember- Rule of law. Yeah, the rule of law. Right. Um, you know, and I remember um, I was working in the Balkans during uh, Gore v. Bush and with the election. And I remember a lot of people came up to me from other countries and from the Balkans and said, are you scared that you're, you know, something's gonna happen in your country? And my point was, no, it'll go to the courts. Um, it'll be decided. People believe in the courts, it will be okay. So, you know, you can have those resiliency factors that can push down or address grievances. And I think also something that's really important around those grievances is perceived or real, it doesn't matter. People's perceived grievances, even if they're not real, are just as dangerous as real grievances. So that I think is a really important point. And then, you know, you have to have these key actors, people that can drive it. And again, good or bad, you know, if you have a Nelson Mandela, you know, he's a key actor that can work to um, mitigate or manage these issues. But you can also have people or organizations that are driving it, that are driving the grievances and pushing them forward and are able to do it on a scale that's large enough to have it have a greater impact. You have to have the ability, you have to have money or um, and resources, resources, mm -hmm. the ability um, to get your messaging out, let's say on the internet. And then finally, you have to have a spark. You have to have a trigger. Um, and you know, we know when you're looking at the data that some of these triggers are around elections. That's, that's a pretty known trigger. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of violence associated with states that collapse before elections. That's right. Elections are a great trigger. Right. Um, but then also... Uh, I mean, look what happened in the United States this right. last That's election. Right. That's right. And then also, you know, uh, disasters. Uh, the drought in Ethiopia uh, right. brought down, you know, two governments. Um, so you can look at that and then there's some things we are just never going to be able to um, understand, and the Arab Spring is one of them. There's not anticipated it. That's right. You can and see you that those drivers were there, and the resilience is. You can see the equation was there, but who would have ever predicted that? It was, it's interesting because you were talking about a youth bulge across uh, North Africa, mm -hmm. and you're and it coupled with inflation so that families couldn't even they couldn't even purchase enough food to feed a family of four it was a perfect storm it's, that's right it is an unbelievable situation that that everybody missed well it's initial not that people missed it i mean all of this data you know is being tracked, right but who would have ever thought the trigger would have been a man who was just trying to feed his family by right. having this little kiosk and that got taken away from him. True. Right. Who would have ever thought well, the that grievances were all behind that. That's what's That's very right. interesting. Very interesting. So let's use an example. And in most often, if you talk about violent conflict, you're talking about a country over there. Here's a recent example. Myanmar just had a coup d'etat 
And on March 3rd, at least 30 people were murdered by the military, fired on demonstrators, according to the UN. But up until the last few years, few of, if, of any people thought in the world that the United States of the United States when discussing fragile states that had become illiberal. So the AFP has now turned to including the United States. And now you're looking at our own backyard and what in your view is driving the conflict in the United States. Well, I mean, as I talked about this conflict equation, it's incredibly complex. And it didn't just start with the election in 2016. So, you know, I, th I think that's really important for people to understand. I've been writing about this for a while. And I have to say, I'm not even sure Americans have really wrapped their head around for them to understand actually how bad our conflict dynamics are right now. And so I think that that's a really critical point that needs to be said. The United States is not doing well at all. The Economist has said that the United States is a flawed democracy. We are falling down on indexes. There is absolutely no reason why what happened with COVID should have happened in the United States. You know, you're seeing a lot of cracks in our institutions, but if you step back and say, what is driving conflict in the United States? What is driving violent extremism? What is driving polarization, the declining trust? There are significant drivers of conflict in the United States, whether it is economic inequality, the racial injustice, racial injustice, systemic injustice and systemic racism. Also income inequality is a, is a significant issue. You know, the proliferation of misinformation and our inability of our government to do anything about it. To regulate anything. To regulate anything. I mean, Zuckerberg just recently, which is shocking to me because he's Jewish, that he rationalized that the Holocaust, there were two different views and that that could stand and that he did not pull down articles on Facebook that challenged the whole premise that the Holocaust took place. That's shocking to me. It's shocking. And one of- As the, an example, as an example yeah. of what you're just talking about. Well, the disinformation and the misinformation right. is shocking. And Europe has done a better job on this. Uh, Germany, for example, and it goes back and, you know, I, our First Amendment is so important to us and, and it really is. But, you know, I don't know if you remember this, Tanya, back in when we were in Bosnia right after the war. Oh, this is a big issue when I was, you know, chair of the Media Experts Commission. That's right. That's yeah. Right. We had written the laws on political party platforms and they could not incite violence. They could right. not incite hate. Right. And there was just this mass proliferation of political parties. And I'm an American lawyer. I couldn't read through these political party platforms because, you know, in the United States, First Amendment. And I had to bring in European lawyers to read the political party statements because they have a different standard um, given what has happened in Europe. So 
Yeah, well, we find, I remember we find two newspapers for using pejorative terms about Muslims. I tried to stay away from it, but the, the committee was just unanimous about it and said it was just unacceptable. And as you point out, Germany had a practice of this in their post-Holocaust development, and they do regulate speech. Now, we could probably have debates about some of the speech that they regulate, but just as you say, the First Amendment doesn't permit one to go into a theater and scream fire. So, but but our courts have been reluctant to regulate speech. And I, I really think that the omission of regulating speech and disinformation on social media platforms is really undermining this country right now. I agree. And that is something our laws have not, kept pace with the internet. Uh, and then also, you know, if you go back, uh, and I don't know how, you know, this would be applied today and you would know better, um, you're, you're, you're the media expert, is the fairness doctrine that was done away. Uh, you know, when you and I were growing up- it's during Reagan. Right, but when you and I were growing up- Right. If it, you were giving your opinion, you had to have another person saying, okay, that's not true, right? If you right. were just reading the straight news. So that went away during uh, the 1980s. Yeah, cable is not under the FCC. They don't, mm -hmm. they don't have to yield to FCC standards because the fairness doctrine was removed mm -hmm. and the networks still do. I mean, the networks at NBC or ABC and CBS, they have to adhere to, to the FCC standards because they are in essence renting the electronic spectrum of the United States to publish and broadcast. And this is where talk radio and cable emerged and they're not under the auspices of the FCC. And I think it's really driven garbage into our society. It's just literal garbage, the, the destruction, the demeaning, the belittling. It's become a platform for people who are filled with antipathy and hatred. And it's been done over several decades. And Trump was not the first person to do it. Right. Started, right. started back in the 80s under a guy who just died, Rush Limbaugh, who broke ground on this. Right. But you saw what happened when some individuals were taken off Twitter. There were reports that disinformation went down, what, 71, 74%? Absolutely. Significant. Significantly. And yeah. our laws are outdated. They have to keep up with technology. That's a really critical piece of this. We know there's racial injustice. We know there's income inequality. Um, don't you think that the failure of institutions in the United States, be it government or even institutions like, for example, when you look at it, sounds might sound off point. I don't think it is. Penn State, Michigan, uh, sexual assault of students. This also is an extension of the Catholic Church and what happened there. There's been a denigrating and inability of institutions to be found accountable. I mean, the spotlight film on the Boston Globe 
pursuing the Roman Catholic Church for 12 years, um, there's just been a failure of accountability in the United States for lots of terrible things, including people who get sent to prison and death row, and they had inadequate representation, legal representation. They were thrown in jail and they eventually were executed by the state. That continues to this day. I mean, it's, it's really shocking in many ways. Where we stand in the world with respect to the rule of law. That's right. And when you look at Pew Research, really does a good job of tracking all this data. And public opinion, right? On this. That's right. On trust in our institutions. And they are going down considerably. And you know, where's what's one of the one areas that Americans still have trust in institutions. Military. That's right. It's the military. It's the number one. Number one. It doesn't, it, we are going down in every other, whatever they're measuring in terms of trust. Right. Which is really unfortunate. And full disclosure, I served in the United States Army for 15 years. When you think about the sexual assault and rape in the military, it's just, it's, it reflects the broader U.S society and it's it's a it's an epidemic the numbers are off the charts well that's right and you know to go back also too and talk about institutions i wrote an article with a colleague of mine on our covid response i don't know about you but you know we are one of the wealthiest countries in the world our health system is not fair but we have, you know, it, we do have access and incredible health infrastructure and sit high on health index in terms of a uh, pandemic. If a pandemic came through, we would right. be able to, right. I'm like, I'm speechless about it. My husband's an epidemiologist. I could not believe that we could not handle this, that we could not address it. Uh, and and that actually chose not to address it. The government chose not to address it. And that's correct. Leadership matters. That's essentially what we talk about in this article, that just because you're a democracy that has the ability, you know, that has access to it has the capacity, right, does not mean you're going to make good decisions on it. And you and leadership matters is essentially what that article talks about. But I was in shock every day in shock that we could not we could not address we could not get our we could not get a handle on this we could not address it that we would have so many people dying every day to have our hospitals overrun i mean you're in new york city you saw it firsthand right how was this happening in the united states it was like what happened with katrina in new orleans but all over the country. But all over the country. So I, I would say this, the other thing that is the big, big factor on this is the actual disinformation that the president of the United States spewed into not only American channels of communication, but indeed there was a Cornell University study done on disinformation 
on COVID-19 and Donald Trump himself was cited as the number one source in the world. He himself generated 37% of all disinformation in the world on COVID-19. Now that is really an incredible finding and not surprised either. And what does that do? People's trust go down in their uh, in their institutions. Trust goes down, and that has a chilling effect on uh, people's perceived that governments are not only legitimate but effective. So you have to have both legitimate and effective. And ours was not effective during Absolutely. the COVID response. And in 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 six weeks. The Biden administration has begun to turn this around in ways that none of us could have imagined, you know, last year. I mean, in six weeks, they have a third vaccine and they're building the infrastructure for deployment as as they increase the doses. It's so sad and regrettable that so many people had to die. And the other thing that really disturbs me about this is that it just seems like you and I and all the people that we know in our our groups of friends and colleagues feel similarly, but it's like, oh, 500,000 people died. Oh, so what? There's this nihilism in opposition that is utterly frightening. The nihilism that who cares about people? What happened in Texas just two weeks ago the failure of deregulation person, per, you know, a perfect storm once again, in the middle of COVID, the electrical grid fails and over, so it's over 60 people died, something like that. It's just unbelievable that governments are that incompetent or just choose not to care. Well, that goes back to the equation on what do you need? You need legitimate and a Effective government. government. And when you see governments not being effective and, you know, look, nobody's perfect, things happen. But when people recognize that whether it's a power grid, whether it is a hurricane is coming and people right. are evacuated right. in time or um, whether it is a pandemic's coming through and mm-hmm you know, the government chooses not to address it, or it gets politicized, that wears at the fabric of your society. Right. It's corrosive. It's corrosive. That's exactly right. So now, you know, I want to get to an example that we have in the United States of violence and an attack on the state on January 6th, the first time that the capital of the United States has been breached since the War of 1812 against Great Britain. And let's just throw in your analysis on how this example of violent extremism and terrorism in the United States, how does that fit into a conflict equation that you use at at AFP? So at the Alliance for Peacebuilding, violent extremism is a form of conflict. It is something that, you know, if you look at the Institute for Economics for Peace, 
and I'm going to make the statistic up, but it's high, you know, in the 80s, that the um, terrorist attacks occur in countries experiencing violent conflict. So what does that tell you? Violent conflict is driving violent extremism. So, you know, is it a symptom? Is it a method? Is it, you know, whatever you call it. So the point is, look at the drivers of conflict. What is driving conflict? Look at those grievances and understand what is driving that. So, you know, the United States is uh, polarizing faster than any other democracy. Why? What is causing that polarization? Why is that happening in the U.S.? faster. What is going on there that is driving people to do what they did on January 6th? What is driving it? And yes, again, you go back to the conflict equation. Somebody's sparking that violence. Something did spark it. We had an election. Um, You had people calling for it. Uh, You know, they obviously had the means. They have the, the former president of the United States spoke about January 6th every day for almost two months. And I just have to say that there's this expression we use in the Balkans, since I am a Balkanist, a scholar in that region, that you just apply enough kindling over and over and you push it out and you push it out and you call for an attack. Eventually, it did come to pass. And it was like a perfect storm. The FBI said they sent out a report, but nobody saw it. I mean, really? Can you go back, take everybody else out of the equation and ask yourself what's driving it? Because, you know, you or I could get on the internet and call for something, you know, but 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 he 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 was a president of the United States. I mean, I'm not the president of the United States. No, a lot of people. Right. So the president of the United States has a lot of power and people believe him. And he dished disinformation, lied every single day, many times during the course of 24 hours. Okay. Go back, go back to the grievances. And what is driving people to be so polarized. I think race is part of it. I mean, come on, we don't, they don't want, I mean, look now, the Brennan Center at NYU has now been tracking bills that will limit access to the ballot. And there's been over 300 laws introduced in state legislatures around the country to deny franchise to people in the okay. next cycle go back in the go next back. cycle <laughs> go back go back even further in terms of you know what is driving this and yes you know race i mean you know but the you, emancipation of the slaves well i mean you can go back you know to say that structural racism right from structural, the very beginning yeah, absolutely right so you have structural the racism the original sin of america that's right but what is driving it now? What is causing this? Beyond Conflict does great work on neuroscience and mental health, an incredible partner with AFP. And uh, they looked at some of the data. And, you know, there is a fear in this country that people are losing their status. People are losing Absolutely. their power. 
Absolutely. There's a professor at the Graduate Center named Tracy Tawari, and she has written that anxiety That's right. about being left out. That's right. And that seeing somebody who's black or brown or a woman get ahead of them. When That's you right. look at the profile on these these people, the New York Times did a very interesting profile on those people who were engaged in the insurrection across the board. They all had financial problems. It was a prevalent right. issue that came up and they modeled the president of the United States on this. They had bankruptcy issues. They had financial issues. Very, very interesting. Okay. But, but Tanya, now right. let's step out yeah. Yeah. and ask ourselves, you know, if I was in Ohio driving through the country, right, and you look at some of these towns, and they've True. been forgotten. True. And then oxycodone came through, and heroin came through. Absolutely. And, you know, these I... towns are devastated, and factories have shut down. And this is very true. I, I don't I disagree. Would, I mean. <sighs> If you live there, I, I completely understand why people feel forgotten. You know, and, and then you also look at the life expectancies for um, white men have gone down, well, especially because of oxycodone and That's now right. and and now the pandemic. Let me also let me so point these are out real here. grievances. No, and this is true. Cannot forget about that. Okay, so there's two there's two books in political science scholarship that I think signaled what was to come. And that was Frank's book on what's going on in Kansas. And that book came out in 2004. Why do people vote against their personal interests? One and two, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone. He really captured how Americans were pulling back from civic engagement. They were bowling alone. They were no longer joining organizations. So one of the things and you probably thought the same at some point. I've been overseas working on democracy development. And I said, we have to do this at home because we right. designed a really great electoral system. Right. At least the technology of, of, of elections in Bosnia where you had a scan machine that could count the ballot. Okay. Mm -hmm. We didn't have that. We didn't have that in America at that time. Okay. So I just have to say that just the the basics, the 101 of democracy, we had lost a long time ago. And I think it happened about the same time as Reaganism. Reaganism, the idea of the shiny city on the hill, that was that's just not true because he gutted the system. Well, let me unpack this a little bit in terms of what is, and this goes to your point on resiliency, even though you had economic inequality and you know, structural racism, but what was there that was, you know, helping the system along? And when you look at just the issues around the urban and rural divide, um, you know, between cities and states, um, and you know, one of the places you can see, Amanda Ripley has some really good data on this, that the areas that you have to look at that are most um, at risk are blue cities with red rural areas wrapped around them. Yeah, surrounding them. That's right. So, you know, like you just- Like Detroit, like we're Detroit. Not, we're not living together. Right. Um, we're not, um, you know, there's this disconnect that's, 
even on TV, the TV programs we watch, the news we watch, the, you know, everything is so divided. It's parallel universes. That's right. And then you add, you know, you get into the education system and our history curriculum hasn't been updated. In some schools, they don't even teach civics anymore. Right. Um, And you read our history. Our history is whitewashed and sanitized. I don't even know whose history it is, but it's, it's, you know, much of it are like fairy tales. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I was a history major at Boston College. Mm -hmm. I've never heard of Tulsa. Never. Right. No idea. No idea that happened. Right. Tulsa was not taught. No. Uh, Wilmington, North Carolina is right. the, is the only coup. The that lunch counter. The yeah. The lunch counter demonstrations. Well, there was a coup in North Carolina uh-huh. back in the 1800s. There was a thriving black community that had, uh, they had the majority on the city council. And finally a, you know, the, the white community had had enough and they kicked them out. That's not taught. Right. The, the, redlining. T- the right. redlining. Yes. And the deprivation, affirmative deprivation of black wealth. I mean, they didn't allow right. them to buy houses, to have farms, et cetera, et cetera. So I completely agree with you. This is like a huge thing. The Alliance now, in terms of your plans for this coming year, mm-hmm. uh, what is the Alliance speaking about? all that is happening in our own backyard. What is the Alliance and its members planning to do or can do to help build peace in the United States, despite facing incredible political fragility and racial and income inequality in America? What's your plans? You're now uh, at the helm of AFP. And how do you plan out a strategic approach and what are some of the activities you're planning to do? You know, I'll start with, if you want to understand what a country values, you look at their budget. Right. And if you look at our budget uh, in, in the United States, the military expenditure is the second largest uh, besides social security. So we have to address and right size our budget. And we have to, we have to fund and we have to resource programs that address preventing violent extremism, reducing violent extremism, uh, prevention programs. We have learned so much from overseas uh, and, and programs that we have uh, done. Our violent extremism is not exceptional. It's not um, unique. There's the same drivers, the same um, factors that we know that are driving violent extremism here in the United States. We have some data on what works, but we have to program. This isn't, you know, there, there are some aspects of it that are a law enforcement issue, of course. We cannot fight our way out of it. We cannot ad- arrest our way out of it. Right, right. We have to address the drivers of conflict that's driving violent extremism. We have to fund it. We have to resource it. In one article I recently wrote um, with Beyond Conflict, uh, Tim Phillips, we talk about, we have to wrap our head around on what's happening in the United States and think of it as what is happening here is at the level of the New Deal. 
Um, we have to think of it at that level and quite frankly, understand from wrapping our heads around this, that there is a problem, a very serious problem. And we don't know, I'm not an economist. We don't know how to fix the economy and how to fix the inequality of uh, economics. But what we can do is make sure that people understand it's linked and that it is driving this conflict and how critical it is. One of the things we uh, work on, and this is different than uh, from the foreign assistance side. The foreign assistance side, we have one committee that we go to. Uh, either it's the House Foreign Affairs Committee, the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have that here. So we have to go to the Department of Homeland Security and say, okay, you need to uh, fund preventing violent extremism programs. Uh, right now you're funding it. Uh, you were at 10 million, you doubled it to 20 million. No, you need a budget like 200 million. Um, you need to bring in health and human services and address the mental health. We need to understand how mental health is figuring into this. On the education side, programs need to be funded that we can go in and revise history uh, curriculum that can give funding to help make sure that civics classes are taught and taught in a way that provide critical thinking. Um, like you said, Tanya, democracy programming. Right. Through, um, and I will say it was Ronald Reagan who founded uh, the NED. Yes, he did. He the did, National but he also, you know, the other thing is, is I do want to say about Reagan is that he really began, he, he sliced and diced the social uh, network, the safety nets for Americans. And as a matter of fact, um, social worker and policy expert on uh, poverty at the Graduate Center in Hunter College. Her name is Mimi Abramowitz. She and her colleague from the School of Labor Studies are actually pitching the idea of universal social security that is delinked from work so that children who are one of our most vulnerable populations in the United States, we have some of the highest child poverty rates in the Western world. And if you cannot feed children and educate them properly, they have no shot at a decent life. And so it starts from the beginning, just as you're saying, but he really gutted. Remember the idea of the welfare queen? He started all of that during his administration and now there's nothing left. So you hit the pandemic and the whole safety net is gone. It's just absolutely gone. You're absolutely right. It but he is didn't do the national democracy. No, no, no. It's a right. new deal. It's a new deal for the 21st century. Well, that's right. And that's what we need. We need that, a new yeah. deal for the 21st yeah. century on a level of imagination that we had with the New Deal and quite frankly, the Marshall Plan. That's what it's going to take. But well, we I do give I do give Biden credit on this first bill. I mean it absolutely will inject, according to Paul Krugman, who I just interviewed last week, mm -hmm. it's going to increase, it's going to inject 8.3% of GDP into the American economy. It's significant. But if you can't pay people $15 an hour, I mean, this is America and you can't pay people $15 an hour. 
So these well, things- actually, you know, we're behind Slovenia. Uh, it's 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 so bad. It's it hasn't been changed in twelve years. The minimum wage at the federal well, level. Okay, so let me step in okay. and say, yeah, I don't know if the minimum wage uh, will get passed um, this year, up to fifteen dollars, but what it will take, and and I think this is what you're going to have to see is corporations stepping in. Um, you know, Costco just went up to $16. That's an true. Given, I, yes, and, it's definitely a good, that's a good sign. And that's what it's going to take. Corporations have to step in. What do corporations like and business like more than anything else? Stability. That's right. Stability. Well, they're usually ahead of the politicians on all these things. And so that's going to be interesting. The problem is, uh, this administration has a very slim margin, as we know, in the Congress. They don't have a lot of time. It goes very quickly, as you know. It's, you know, they got 18 months up front, maybe to really make big changes. It's going to be very interesting to see what they decide about the filibuster eventually. But it, yeah. But you so, can't just call for unity. And that's absolutely you know, my point is you're going to have to find bipartisan ways uh, to make sure that, you know, you're funding education programs, you're funding uh, prevention, violent extremism prevention programs, that you are funding democracy programs, that you're getting the laws right on the disinformation and the misinformation. And if we don't, we do this at our own peril. So I take it then the AFP is going to be very busy on the Hill pushing for some of these programs where it's appropriate for, for you to weigh in. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, okay. that's what we're working on right okay. now. Okay. So we look forward to hearing about all of that in the weeks and months to come, Liz. I want to thank you for being our first guest. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to Peace, we build it. And thanks to our guest, Ms. Liz Hume, the acting CEO and president of the Alliance for Peace Building. The Peace We Build It podcast is made possible through the financial support of the Alliance for Peace Building based in Washington, D.C. Tanya Domi is the host and senior fellow for communications at the Alliance for Peace Building and Kevin Wolf, the audio engineer, provides technical assistance. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple, and where all podcasts are found.